All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with one of the biggest rock and roll tours in years here. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band heading back out on the road in February. And that's where we start the show this morning now with the fan backlash to the ticket prices for this tour. The dynamic pricing system at Ticketmaster taking a lot of heat over this. I've got legendary music manager Bruce Allen standing by to discuss. Bruce, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, good to talk to you, Mike. Hey, Bruce, thanks a lot for doing this. The stories that have been circulating on this Springsteen tour about the prices are really eye-catching, and this has been reported around America this week, that some of these prices are going for $5,000. Bruce, what is up with this? Well, what it is, it's just what you said at the outset, Mike. It's uh, dynamic pricing, and uh, dynamic, people don't know what dyna- dynamic pricing is. Ticketmaster uses it. Uh, it's a pricing policy which uh, use algorithms, actually, to, to adjust ticket prices in real time according to supply and demand. So they, if they see the tickets really going out fast on the P1s, which are the best seats, P1s, they see that people are buying them up, they say, well, we can charge more, we can charge more, and they and they do that now. Let's make one thing certain here. The manager and the artist has signed off on that approach. Right. Ticketmaster just doesn't get up and do it. You know, the man of the people forgot about being the man of the people for a minute, and all of a sudden he's got an angry, a bunch of angry people out there. But again, Mike, people have complained for eons about ticket prices. They complain about the ticket prices at the hockey games, the ticket prices at football games, the ticket prices to do anything. That's just normal. But this thing, because it's Bruce Springsteen, I think has really drawn a lot of eyeballs, and uh, people are shocked. Okay, when people talk about $5,000 tickets, I mean, this is the number that's in the headline. I mean, I'm taking a look at Ticketmaster right now for the Springsteen show coming up in Seattle in February. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you can get tickets on there for... You know, in some of the cheaper seats for like three hundred bucks, right? Yeah, I mean, if you back. want, yeah, that's at the back. If you want lower bowl, which is kind of like where I like to sit, you know, you're looking at around a grand, which you know is better than five thousand bucks, I guess. But I mean, do you think anyone should be asked to pay a ticket that much money? They, listen, if they don't like the price, they don't have to buy it. But here's what ha- we learned a long time ago, Mike, that when we have ticket prices like let. I've been with a lot of big bands that have sold tickets, and you, you, you put a ticket up sale, let's say a P1 ticket, 150 bucks, Not a stupid amount of money, but 150 bucks. What we're finding is people buy four tickets, they keep two, sell the other two to a scalper, and the scalper then sells it on from there. The guy, basically, the guy who bought the four tickets went to the show free. That's going on all the time, and you'll see all these tickets in stub hubs and different uh, people around town here that have uh, ticket outlets. They've got tickets somehow, and they've jacked the prices up themselves, and we've been used to that. Okay, that's been going on. What's happening with dynamic pricing is it changes so fast. You know, you can be right in the break. You can look at the ticket one minute and it's five hundred dollars, and you look at it again if you went and got a drink of water and came back at six hundred and fifty. That's the problem, and uh, and it's just it's just a system that you know I think is going to come come back to bite some people in the ass. There's no doubt about it because it's difficult for a fan to swallow that kind of money. I, I mean, I go to boxing fights. I watch the fight tickets, and you know, we want to sing Ringside Mike to pay fifteen hundred bucks. But you, yeah. you can buy a fifteen hundred dollar ticket. This this stuff is uh, this one. Bruce, there's a there's a this has been a big big news story because especially because it's Bruce Springsteen, the man of the people. 
Right, and Springsteen's manager is defending this dynamic pricing system that they're using here for this tour, saying there were lots of tickets available when they went on sale for face value at around 200 bucks. But the problem is, though, that those tickets get snapped up instantaneously, and almost instantly a lot of them are up for resale on Ticketmaster, yeah. correct? Yeah. Absolutely. Or, yeah. or out on the street. <laughs> well, doesn't that make doesn't that make Ticketmaster? I mean, we all talk about ticket scalping. Doesn't that make Ticketmaster? They're almost like the scalpers. Well, it's it's. I don't want I want I don't want to say that because I don't believe Ticketmaster are scalpers. Okay, I believe yeah. that there's a system that makes them appear that way. But I'm not going to say that Ticketmaster are scalpers. I think Ticket on the, when they they adjust their prices, they're charging what the public will pay, and I I, I don't know. I don't like dynamic pricing. Okay, I, we I don't allow yeah. it. I don't. None of my, my guys like it because they get bombarded. You don't. You, we got. We're living a time now, Mike, where the access to the artists is a lot and is easy. And and, yeah. and our, the artists have to take these punches that people are throwing at them about the ticket prices. So we try to be as fair as we possibly can. But we're out here, Mike, on the my tour here. I'm in Atlanta right now. We open up this tour in about four days. We're, we're sitting here with 15, 16 trucks. We sit here with uh, 100 people on this tour. We sit here with you know hotel prices gone up, uh, ga- uh, gasoline prices are up, everything else goes up. We, we, we have to look after ourselves, too. And, I mean, that's yeah. just the way of the world right now. Okay, so you're talking, of course, about Michael Bublé, the, the great singer on tour. And so for Michael Bublé's shows, these are not dynamic pricing. It's not the same system. No, well, no, because I didn't, we yeah. don't allow it. And uh, uh-huh. it, so it's, we, 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 but you know what's interesting, Mike? The first tickets to go on every one of our shows before I sold out are P1s, what we call P1s, best seats in the house, probably. It's 30% of the best of the seats are the best seats in the house. And then it's, then it's the seats at the back, which are cheaper, and in the middle they start to fill in. But that, it's amazing that P1s go so fast, and I mean fast. Do you and think the that, tickets. Have, you, have you ever seen a Springsteen show? Yes. I mean, he's great, right? Like, what do you think of him? As, as an artist, I think it's great. I mean, yeah. I, I find four hours a little long. But um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, but he's a great performer, great entertainer. Odd thing about Bruce Springsteen, he's never had a number one record, which is mind blowing too. But I mean, he's he's uh, he's he's got a persona that's worked, and uh, he puts on great shows, and it's value for dollar, and the people that love him love him, and uh, this time <clears throat> this time they're going to pay for it, and and uh, I just wonder what's going to happen. I just wonder what's going to happen, yeah. Mike. If somebody, if all of a sudden everybody starts booing just because you can. Ooh. Would you pay five thousand bucks to see him, though? No, I would not. No, no, I don't think many people would. Unless you're a super fan. Hey, Br- <laughs> hey, Bruce. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. You bet, Mike. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Okay, we continue talking about the Bruce Springsteen tour and the fan backlash here to some of the astronomical prices that are being reported. Dynamic pricing at Ticketmaster being blamed for this. Let's check in with Donna Gray now from Bruce Funds. Hi, Donna. Hello out there. Hey, Donna. Thanks, thanks for, for having com- me on. You bet. Thanks for coming on. Tell me about Bruce Funds. You like you help fans who are what they, they don't they've got uh, down a, don't have a lot of money and they're trying to go to a Bruce show. You help them out. Is that what you do? <laughs> yeah, essentially, it's a grassroots community that started in 2012 uh, simply by me giving away my one extra ticket. Other people heard about it and they said they wanted to do the same thing. So the fan base pretty much takes care of its own. 
and people okay. write to me and uh we have a set of criteria we follow and we try to get everyone in to see a local show to them wow that's amazing what do you think of these ticket prices for the tour I think the dynamic pricing aspect uh, is very much ridiculous, out of hand, and needs to have some sort of regulation applied to it. Yeah, do you find that disappointing? Like as a as a Bruce as a Bruce super fan, I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, he's a man of the people, right? Like, do you, do you are you a little disappointed that he's decided to go with this system? It's. Yes, it's. Uh, yeah. I've I've been around twelve rounds of emotions in the last two weeks, Mike. So, yeah. it's um it's been hard, but uh, you know that's his right as an artist. It doesn't change what I try to do to help people. Yeah, let's have a listen here. Okay, this is Rob Lucas, who's a DJ at Star One Hundred Two Point Five in Buffalo, New York, and here is his take on it. Then I'll get your thoughts. It makes complete sense from the artist and the manager's point of view. Yet from the fan's point of view, it's really, really hard to understand, especially when you consider Bruce. He's supposed to be the working man's performer. Yeah, I mean, that's the point that uh, I was just making there, that this is, Bruce is kind of the blue-collar kind of rock and roll star. And yet, you know, here we've got like $5,000 ticket prices. Like, do you think that... Some of the price. What are what are the prices that are you're seeing out there, Donna? Like you know, five thousand bucks. I mean, that is the highest end tickets out there. But what if you just want to sit up in the rafters or near the back? How much are those tickets going for? Well, originally people got in and they were seeing fifty nine dollar, eighty nine dollar tickets in the in the rafters, but that's gone up to four or five hundred dollars just to be in the last row, Whoa. and that's absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely inexcusable, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, I mean, we're a little disappointed here in Vancouver. He's not coming here, Donna, but he is coming to nearby Seattle. And I was just looking at the prices there. Lower bowl tickets there in Seattle, which is kind of where I like to sit, is like around 1000 bucks a ticket. I mean, what do you think of that? I I think it is a sign of the times, and I think that fans can be smarter and wait it out. Mm. Um, I think that prices will drop that I was listening to a lot of, uh, market, uh, advice about dynamic pricing. It was brand new to me. So I had to read up on it. I had to educate myself a little bit and, you know, market advisors are saying, wait it out. Prices will drop. That's very hard for a fan to hear when we've waited six years for, for the band to go back on tour. Right. It's, right. you know, it's, it's it's a bitter pill to swallow, no doubt about it. For sure. Speaking of Donna Gray, she is the founder of Bruce Funds, and they help needy fans get to into some Springsteen shows. Is your phone and email, like, ringing off the hook here, Donna, with people looking for help to buy tickets? Yes, it's, um, to say, that's an understatement. There's email I have yet to get back to. It's just, uh, it's just me behind the scenes. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm doing my best. We have some people, uh, we were able to help some people last week, and we have some people who donated tickets currently available. They're, we're looking to place tickets. So if you go to brucefunds.org and you click on uh, available tickets that other people have donated, perhaps I can get a ticket into somebody's hand. Right. Okay. So you ask people to donate a ticket if they can. 
Yep, that's how it started originally. Just everyone who had an extra ticket and they didn't want to sell it out of the kindness of their heart. They wanted to pay the gesture forward, mm. um, so they donated it to us. And you know, we've got a single for Boston right now, and um, a few for uh, the uh, USB Arena in, in uh, Elmont, New York. We also have some Paris, and I think we have uh, one for Scotland, the Scotland date as well. Yeah, right, right. Okay, and now, Donna, you're a super fan. I know, as you said, you're disappointed in the situation here. You're still going to the show, though, right? I actually don't have a ticket. Oh, no. I wasn't a verified I wasn't a verified fan. I didn't even get a code. Um, so I, I'm learning... Uh, I'm learning who my friends are. <laughs> no, that's just a joke. I mean, I'm sure I'll be able to get in. I, I'm trying to take the approach that tickets, ticket pricing will come down yeah. and hope for the best. Okay, Donna, thanks for all you do there to help out Springsteen fans who can't afford these tickets. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much. You bet. Donna Gray there from Bruce Funds. Let's talk to Dan on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Dan. What do you think of this? Yeah, thanks, Neil, for taking my call. Uh, just to, you know, I, I'm I'm torn between how these bands can turn around and charge the prices that they do. Uh, you know, I, I saw Springsteen on the Borden USA tour back in '84, and uh, I mean, mm. he puts on a great show. Yeah. Uh, you know, it went it went till midnight. It was a fantastic concert, but I want to talk to you about the eagles i'm a huge eagles fan and they're coming to vancouver and i was looking online for ticket prices there and they're up in the range of two thousand dollars oh oh so you know like you know i hope down the road that these bands you know play to about 15 people in an audience because it's absolutely ridiculous all right. Welcome back. Let's talk about one of the most powerful drug lords in the history of Mexico now. And if you like the TV show Narcos Mexico, you may recognize this name, Felix Gallardo. He has been called the godfather of the Mexican drug trade, paving the way for bosses who followed behind him, guys like El Chapo. Gallardo is now 76 years old. He is in jail. He's been behind bars since 1989 for his role in the murder of a DEA agent. But you often hear that these drug lords can continue to control their business interests even behind bars. And check out what Felix Giardo is up to now. He has registered his name as a trademark. Why would he do that? Let's discuss that now with my guest, John Rizvi, the patent professor. John is a lawyer specializing in patents and trademarks. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, John. Yes, uh, good morning. It's always a pleasure being here. Thanks Thanks for doing this, John. Why is, okay, Gallardo, for people who've seen the Narcos TV show on Netflix, they may know a little bit about this guy. Why has he registered his name as a trademark? Well, uh you know, when you file for a trademark, you have to indicate what classes of goods uh, you want to protect your mark in. So that gives us hints to what's coming. Uh, his trademark application is for jewelry, alcoholic beverages, footwear, hats, clothing, watches, books, and believe it or not, office supplies. Uh, <laughs> so it's clear. <laughs> it's clear that there's going to be. Uh, there's, there's an indication of a number of products coming out uh, branded uh, with his name. 
Okay, is it, how can he do that? Is that is that legal to do? If you're a convicted criminal, you're behind bars for murder, you're still allowed to do that? That's legal, right? It It is legal, and I, I, I absolutely understand where this question's coming from, because uh, in a lot of jurisprudence, there's, there's this presumption that convicted criminals should not profit from their crimes. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, so this kind of runs in the face of that, because it is the crime that has actually made him infamous, and then to get a trademark, it, it, it just rubs a lot of people the wrong way, that he's capitalizing on that fame, which is not fame for, uh, you know, anything good. It's fame for, for being a drug lord and for, for crimes committed, and he's actually in jail for that. And as you mentioned, making uh, clearly still looking at uh, the, the, from the profit incentive and running his operation from jail. Right. And I believe that I mentioned earlier El Chapo and people may be very familiar with that name. One of the most notorious cartel leaders in Mexico. He's also in jail. He's down in that supermax prison down in Colorado right now. He's not getting out of there anytime soon. But he didn't he do the same thing? Didn't El Chapo trademark his name, too? Uh, yes, he did. And uh, in fact, El Chapo worked for Gallardo it's, uh, uh, before Gallardo went to prison. But uh, El Chapo is actually actually got a trademark for the brand name El Chapo 701. And interestingly enough, the 701 is the number that represents uh, El Chapo's listing in the Forbes listing of the world's richest. So uh, that's where that trademark comes from. Uh, and, and, and his and he's actually selling product products as well. So it looks as if. Uh, at one point, El Chapo worked for Gallardo, but now Gallardo is taking a page out of El Chapo's playbook and, and registering uh, his own name as a trademark. Uh, who would want to buy this stuff, do you think? Like, who would want to buy a shirt or any other kind of piece of fashion or footwear with the name of a brutal criminal on it? Yeah, so uh, clearly uh, it, it's not... It's not something that that I think sounds like you and I would have really an interest in, but what's but there are a lot of people out there that romanticize criminals, uh, including uh, in, even murderers and and drug lords, and there's actually a market for uh, for products uh, by convicted murderers, by by uh, notorious murderers. The, the more famous, I think, the more the higher value their uh, possessions go for. And, you know, believe it or not, there's a, there's a term for it. It's murderabilia. And eBay was facing a lot of uh, criticism. This was years ago because there were people selling uh, ridiculous items from, from, you know, from well-known killers. I mean, they had clothing, artwork, even hair samples from Charles Manson and, and John Wayne Gacy. Uh, this is, you know, because of the outcry, eBay has stopped uh, uh, you know, posting these products for sale, but that that doesn't kill the demand. And there's private yeah. websites that are still offering these items. Speaking of John Rizvi, John is a patent lawyer. He specializes in patents and trademarks. And we're talking about Mexican drug lord Felix Gallardo trademarking his name for a fashion line, potentially. Same thing that El, El Chapo did. You know, in the United States, can you tell me what, about the Son of Sam laws in the United States? People may have heard of that, the Son of Sam law. What is that? Yeah, so uh, it, it's 
again, it's a, uh, laws that are that have been codified that 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 do not want criminals to profit from their crimes. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, for, especially convicts from profiting from their crimes, uh, especially after there's a conviction. Uh, and they have unfortunately largely been ruled unconstitutional uh, for violating First Amendment rights to freedom of speech. Uh, and that's that's why it's, you know, and, and that's been tough because that's preventing some of the laws are still on the books, but they're not really when they're tested. They seem to be deemed unconstitutional. Right. And the, the son of Sam was killer David Berkowitz. And, and I think that's why they're known as these son of Sam laws, because what happened? He, he tried to write a book in jail or something. Tried to write a book in jail and uh, and it was, you know, and tried and, and profiting from it. And that was uh, what started it. This was in New York. Um, and then several other states followed by, by codifying laws uh, to prevent that. And those laws have just become known as the son of Sam laws. But you're right. They, they started with this uh, mass murder, uh, David Berkowitz. Right. Now, are there any other laws in the United States, like you mentioned, that a lot of this has been challenged in court and some of them ruled unconstitutional, but are, is there anything in, in U.S. trademark law that you're aware of that would prevent someone from trademarking uh, something that would be considered, like, immoral or indecent? Yeah, ab- absolutely. There's, uh, in the United States, in, in the Lanham Act, uh, the trademark office is permitted to reject an application for anything that's immoral, scandalous, or disparaging. Uh, but just like um, the Son of Sam laws, anytime this has been tested and the, the trademark office has, has rejected an application, uh, when the applicant has pushed, uh, that, that it has been found unconstitutional. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's still... In, in the Lanham Act, but as far as how much, uh, you know, it can actually be enforced by the trademark office, that that doesn't seem to be something that, that can be used to really reject an application. All right, it's very interesting stuff. John, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. You heard my conversation there with patent attorney John Rizvi on Felix Gallardo, the Mexican drug lord in jail who has patented his name now, trying to make money off his reputation. El Chapo did the same thing. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Douglas Century, the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Hunting El Chapo. His brand new book, I also recommend to you, The Last Boss of Brighton, The Rise of the Russian Mob in America. Pleased to welcome him back. Douglas, thanks for coming on today. Mike, it's always a pleasure to be on. How are you? Hey, Douglas, I'm doing great. Can you tell me about this guy, Felix Gallardo? Who is this guy? Well, if anybody watched Narcos Mexico, he was sort of romanticized and glamorized by a great actor named uh, Diego Luna. But, I mean, he's the he was a former uh, cop. A lot of these top narco guys were on the on the side of the law who flipped. He set up the original uh, what they call the Federation or the Guadalajara cartel, which was the one cartel that existed back in the days. And uh, it split into the many cartels we know today, Sinaloa, the Gulf Cartel, etc. But uh, he's doing time uh, for the murder of a great DEA agent named Kiki Camarena, the torture murder he's doing, uh, I think he's 36 years into a sentence, 76-year-old man, and now he's just trying to profit off the 
um, sheik of Narcos Mexico, which has made him uh, kind of a well-known. He's called El Padrino, which means the godfather or El Jefe, the Jefe, the boss of bosses. He's a dangerous bad guy who's actually in really rough shape. I can tell you about his health problems right now, but just trying to capitalize on the fame of the Narcos Mexico brand, I'm sure. Yeah, so you think a lot of this flows from the popularity of the Netflix Narcos series. There are more people know who this guy is, so he wants a piece of the action now. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, I talked to a great a great journalist friend of mine, and I, he said there's no there's no uh, market for this in Mexico. It's totally not cool to wear like a, 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 a an El Chapo shirt or nobody does that. So this is this is geared towards the North American and maybe European market. Uh, I There's no um, uh, there's no, you know, First Amendment rights in the U.S. make it possible for people to do the same thing. But victims of crimes can sue. They're called son of Sam laws. There's no such thing in the U.S. in the sorry in Mexico to prevent a drug lord who's murdered from profiting. And I think they just look at it. Look, you know, these gringos made a series making lots of money off our names. So like El Chapo's uh, wife, you know, clothing line. He figures, why not? He's dying in prison. Uh, if anyone wants to see what this guy's life is it, there's a really disturbing interview uh, it's an entrevista interview with him by telemundo he's got one eye he's deaf mm. he's in a wheelchair and he says during the interview you know i have no life all i want all i am right now is a cadaver waiting to be buried under a tree so the guy there's no glamour to this guy's life and there never was but Mark Narcos Mexico is a very handsome, you know, dashing young actor who played him, Diego Luna. So, yeah, I think the, the family or whatever, they're thinking, hey, why, why aren't we getting a piece of this action? Why don't we have like some clothing and apparently alcohol, every other thing under the sun? Yeah, <laughs> I find jewelry, it nauseating. Yeah, yeah, alcohol, fashion, clothing, jewelry. I mean, whatever he can footwear, whatever he can slap his, his name on and make some money. He appears that's that appears to be the plan. I, I thought it was interesting, Douglas, when you said that this kind of stuff is not a popular consumer item in Mexico. It would not be cool to wear an El Chapo shirt in Mexico. I thought, weren't some of these Mexican drug lords kind of like folk heroes in Mexico to some people? Absolutely. In certain regions, they are, there are folk heroes. But just a, a, um, I think in Colombia, uh, in South America, there has been a kind of a chic about Pablo Escobar. So maybe his image is kind of cool. But my friend who's a top journalist in Mexico said, nobody's walking around with El Chapo faces. Now, there is a coded thing, 701, which yeah. was his El Chapo's ranking on uh, Forbes' most powerful or wealthiest billionaires. He was number 701. So you will sometimes see baseball hats that say 701, which is, but that's a little bit more coded than just walking around with this guy's face slapped on your chest so my buddy told me you know hardly anybody in mexico it's they're more worried about getting robbed or murdered than they are yeah. wearing some nar <laughs> and also you make you a target like you know you're putting that on your on you know the cops might stop you who knows what it, it does but i think it's going to be very chic in uh, the u.s and canada for everybody that was addicted to that narcos mexico and thinks hey i'm you know i'm down with the whole cartel thing <laughs> i mean yeah. I, it's nauseating because it really it's it's a human life human rights crisis in Mexico and it's a, and it's a drug addiction crisis around the world. And this, you know, they've made it. I can't blame these guys for trying to get a piece of the action, but on the other hand, they're murderers. They've wreaked havoc and, and created a, you know, we, we hear about the, the statistics of, of, of innocent people murdered in Mexico. It's just, so it's a gross, I don't know, nauseating thing, but you know, rappers have taken the name Gotti and an Escobar for years. People somehow find this cool. 
you know, and I, I think this poor guy dying, not sorry, not poor guy, this, this old man dying in prison just wants a piece of the action or his family to get some money off what the gringos have done with his, his fame or rather his infamy. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with you, Douglas. Uh, this is something that should not be glamorized or, or glorified. But, you know, this guy is following in the footsteps of El Chapo in doing this and registering his name as a trademark. Is El Chapo's family uh, making a lot of money off of his branded uh, fashion items? I saw that, you know, it was 2020 when they launched it. Uh, it was his, his his daughter that registered it, his wife. He has a much younger wife who's actually a U.S. citizen, uh, Emma Coronel. She won some local farmer's beauty contest. They always call her a beauty queen, but she was just like, it was like a Miss, you know, ranch in Alberta <laughs> or, or BC oh. or something. It was very local, but she's the daughter of a famous narco. Uh, yeah, she's trying to profit. I don't, I haven't, I mean, I can only gauge what I see. I haven't seen people online or in my real life walking around with El Chapo shirts very often. Um, but I think, yeah, they're just trying to, I think they see this. El Chapo did this while he was still free. He was trying to sell his movie rights. That's why he met with yeah. Keita Castillo and Sean Penn. He figured if someone's going to make a movie of my life, I should make some money off this. I guess that's the way they think. Uh, why are the gringos, why are the, or the Canadians or whoever it may be making money off my image and my, my hard work, so to speak, running a, a, a cartel. Now this guy's even, I, I, I'm sorry, Miguel Angel uh, Felix Gallardo, really what he's charged with, what he's doing time for is the torture murder of a DE agent who was buried alive, basically, and tortured. You know, oh. it's just, it's, th- this guy's not in any way somebody that, kids or people should look up to he's portrayed in the narcos series as extremely machiavellian and ruthless and all that uh but yeah he was a cop uh and a couple of the other guys were cops judicial local cops but you know it just kind of shows you how how deep the layers of corruption go in mexico that you know these guys will flip to the dark side easily uh and he's not a happy guy but seriously go go on youtube and look up interview Mundo last year and you're looking this guy is just a shell of a human being with you know an eye missing and you're just saying what glamour is in that life you know he's just waiting okay. to die and be buried under a tree <laughs> douglas it's always awesome to have you on here thank you for coming on today thanks mike all right let's talk about 3d printed homemade guns now these are the so-called ghost guns the federal government of canada indicating yesterday very worried about ghost guns getting into the country lacking serial numbers posing a serious risk because they're easy to make and difficult to trace check this out now canada border services agency yesterday Say officers did a search in Kelowna and found smuggled firearm parts, discovered a 3D printing machine in the process of printing a handgun frame. And the investigation continues here. Border officers report these ghost guns made from 3D printed parts seized in the B.C. interior. They say there were parts intercepted in the mail in vancouver and toronto got some great guests coming up on this let's have a listen first though to this report from nbc news this is a ghost gun there's no record of it it took no background check and we have no idea how many like it are on our streets today because it's built from a perfectly legal pre-packaged kit and then made into a working firearm in the amount of time it takes to build an IKEA cabinet. 
just over an hour. Last year, the LAPD recovering more than double the number of ghost guns compared to the year before in the weapons used in at least 24 homicides in the city. In Philadelphia, the police department recovered 571 constructed ghost guns, more than five times the number in 2019. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Colin Wilson, Director of Defense Distributed. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Colin, thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Right, can you tell me what you guys do there at Defense Distributed? You, you sell these, these 3D printers, is that correct? Uh, that's one part of what we do. We, we invented all the core technology for 3D printed guns and ghost guns for the last, you could say, like 10 years. So we help people use kind of every part of the equation. Where are you guys based? Uh, we're based in Austin, Texas. I mean, there's no doubt you've heard of at least one of our inventions or products. Yeah, and, and this is legal, right? Like we heard in that report that these are, it's legal what you're doing there. It's difficult to say because this is a Canadian law report. I mean, I don't know that you guys have a ban on making guns in, in Canada or not, um, but I guess the but point is it doesn't the, matter. What about in the United States? It's legal, correct? Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. To make a gun at home in the United States is in general legal. Yeah, and why, why do you think anyone would want to do that? or why, can you, What is the defense of that? Uh, well, we don't have to defend it. It's like always been legal. So there's always a market for homemade guns or repairing your commercially acquired guns. I guess you could say it's as old as the country, but we update it with like modern technology and, and we've proved that there's a market for it. Right. And how many of these ghost guns are in, in the United States right now? We heard in that report, it's almost it's impossible to estimate. It is probably not likely that we'll ever have an accurate number, but at the same time, there's a conflation happening. A, a lot of the crime guns and the ghost gun conversation are just normal guns bought in normal ways, but have had their serial numbers removed. So I still think to date, it's, it's actually a pretty small number. Yeah. What is the, uh, what's the trend line on this in, in America right now in terms of like states cracking down? Because I've heard the Biden administration uh, raise concerns around these, these 3D printed guns and gun parts. Are some states taking action to restrict them? Uh, no doubt. Yeah, there are, yeah. let's say, five or six states which have like really tried to at least interrupt some of the parts of these kits or require you to you know, write into the state to get a serial number before you make a kit. And then Biden himself, through federal rulemaking, has tried to make most of the most popular kits themselves kind of re redesignated as firearms so they can't be sold without serial numbers. Okay, we just had two arrests here in Canada over a 3D printing machine uh, discovered in the process of printing a handgun frame. Our federal government here has said that they're very concerned about these guns, these ghost guns, because they don't have a serial number. They're easy to make, difficult to trace. What do you say to their concerns? Uh, it, it seems like the, the wires are crossed a little. Like if the top headline is there's going to be a, a freeze, let's say, not a ban, but a freeze on handgun acquisition in Canada, it seems that that's going to actually create incentives to make more of these so-called ghost guns. Uh, that will be the only way, that, in fact, that they can proliferate. So if Canada is truly worried about this as a top-level concern, they might want to mitigate you know, the, the otherwise commercial ban or freeze on handguns. Okay, that's an interesting point. But what, what about the concerns, though, around you know, a, a, a homemade 3D plastic gun that doesn't have a serial number, difficult to trace? You know, obviously, I think there'd be some obvious concerns there. How do you respond to it? Well, there's no doubt there's security concerns, although how most of these ex these guns exist, either off 3D printers or mills, is, is kind of in a partial form. Like, they're not completely plastic. They're not completely untraceable. They come from commercial components, by and large. There's like a hybrid. It, it, really, it's a mix of 
the old way of making guns and the new way. So they're a little easier to detect, I think, and to mitigate than, than the news is letting you, you believe. Hmm. All right, Colin, thanks for coming on to talk about it. Yeah, my pleasure. Colin Wilson, Defense Distributed in Texas. Let's check in with Rod Giltaka now, CEO, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Thanks for coming on, Rod. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, 3D printed guns in Canada. What is your group's position on these? Well, our group doesn't have a position um, on 3D printed guns. We're uh, we're a law and order organization that are just trying to ensure that uh, that vetted, um, good, honest Canadians can still have legal access to guns. So it sort of falls outside of our purview um, as as far as the activities of our group is concerned. Yeah, I mean, we we heard the federal government this week uh, expressing concerns around some of these parts being smuggled into the country through the mail. I mean, you and I have talked before about if the federal government is going to put its resources anywhere, it should be around border control and illegal guns and smuggled and smuggled firearms. Do you, would this fall within that category? Well, yeah. If you, if you look at what happened in West Kelowna, it's it's um, the criminal element operating completely outside of the law, manufacturing untraceable firearms. So, right. you know, no no legislation that the government is bringing forward is going to or has brought forward is going to have any effect on the activity of these uh, these individuals. Um, you know, none of the uh, the the things uh, that they've levied on licensed gun owners is going to do anything. These are people that work outside the system. So, um, again, as we said in the past uh, ad nauseum, uh, if you want to cut down on activities like this, then you have to cut down on crime. The incentives of crime, the, the root causes, the people perpetrating these crimes need to go to them. And that's uh, but the, the unfortunately, the, the liberals refuse um, to to focus on these things. And that's why Canada isn't safer uh, since uh, the first round of uh, gun control from the liberals back in C-71. I thought it was interesting what my, my first guest just said there a short time ago, Colin Wilson. He's with this company called Defense Distributed in Texas, and, and they sell some of these 3D printers that can make these printed guns. And he made the point that he said in Canada, with Justin Trudeau announcing the handgun freeze on handgun sales, you know, you might even see more of these kind of homemade guns in Canada. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Let me play a clip here first of Trudeau. Here's Trudeau announcing the handgun freeze, and then I'll get your thoughts. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Okay, capping the market for handguns, no longer legal to purchase. Rod Giltaka, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think that that could lead to, I don't know, even more illegal guns? Like if the bad guys are looking to get a gun, could they turn to some of these 3D printed guns as an option? Well, Trudeau's actions are absurd. I mean, what basically, if I were to paraphrase what he said, it's it's uh, people that belong to gun clubs and legally and lawfully own firearms and treat them res- with respect will no longer be able to acquire any new firearms or uh, or sell them or transfer them to you know family members or what have you. These these regulations, as I said, only affect people with firearms licenses that account for their firearms. So 
Um, what your previous guest, that was a good guest, by the way. And what, what he said was probably true, um, that if you reduce the proliferation of real guns, you're going to increase the proliferation of homemade guns because criminals will always find a way. And I'm not sure that a lot of people would go to 3D printed guns anyway because they're inferior to normally manufactured guns. So you'd probably just see an uptick in illegal imports of guns from the United States. Speaking of Rod Giltaka, CEO, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Earlier this week, Rod, on the show, I spoke to Noah Schwartz, University of the Fraser Valley. He's got a brand new book out on gun control in in the United States. He follows the gun control debate here in Canada as well. And we talked a lot about illegal guns coming across the border from the United States into Canada, whether the restrictions the Trudeau government has imposed here in Canada and announced will make a difference in gun crime on our side of the border. Here's what he had to say to me, and then I'll get your thoughts. This is Noah Schwartz earlier this week on the show. We know with firearms, there's two markets. There's always the, you know, the legal market, uh, which in Canada, the legal market for handguns has been heavily regulated since the 1930s. Um, and then you have the illegal market, which is sort of by its very nature, very difficult to regulate. The problem in Canada is that the crime guns that we're seeing showing up in crime scenes, especially in big cities like Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, um, are being smuggled from the United States. Uh, in some cities, it's as many as 90% of the crime guns showing up are coming from the U.S. Okay, so he argues 90% of the crime guns coming from the United States. I I suspect if Marco Mendicino was here or another uh, representative of the federal government, they would say they're concerned about legal guns in Canada being used to commit crimes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, they would always say that because that's the only thing, that's that's their only go-to to justify what they're doing to legal gun owners. Um, You know, it's... and, and. Again, I think just people for, forget it's such a misunderstood topic by most Canadians, but they, they don't, you know, people forget that you're dealing with the criminal element. So if they can't get if they can't manufacture enough handguns, they'll import them. If they can't import them from the United States, they'll smuggle them in from elsewhere. If they can't do that, someone with a CNC machine somewhere will start to produce parts. I mean, this is this is just like the war on drugs. We 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 got to a point on the war on drugs where we're like, okay, we give up. We'll just let people have drugs and regulate it. So it's it's the same mistakes over and over again. And the reason why we keep making them is purely political. It's whipping up one group of people against the next. We've had guns for forever since since before Canada was a was a country. And we regulate guns, and gun owners are are good, honest Canadians. And this is like there's nothing new here. It's just the politics yeah. is new. What is the status, Rod, of purchasing a handgun in Canada? Like, has the freeze has the freeze been implemented in Canada, or can you still purchase a handgun now? You can still purchase a handgun. Um, the Liberals are uh, creating the freeze by, again, using an order in council, although this time they're trying to follow the rules. I guess last time they got sued. So they're trying to follow the rules a little bit. So right now you can still transfer a handgun in Canada, which is my understanding. I didn't check this morning. Um, so that is still happening, but the uh, the order in council that was entered by the uh, Liberal government should take effect sometime in September. There's a couple of things that right. they have to do to make that complete, and then these transfers will come to an end for so long as uh, they're in power. Yeah, and I remember speaking to the owner of a, a gun store in Surrey in the immediate aftermath of the handgun freeze announcement by, by Justin Trudeau, and he told me there was a lineup outside his store, you know, people who were looking to purchase a, a handgun before the freeze kicked in. 
Like I, I, I got a feeling there's probably been more handguns sold in the country at any time in the past here in the in the most recent period. Do you think almost that's the a year's case? Worth, yeah, yeah, almost a year's worth of handguns have been transferred in the last uh, whatever six weeks or so. A, a year's worth of handguns in just six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like I don't know. <laughs> what do you make of that? <laughs> is, is it is it kind of backfiring, so to speak? Well, I mean, eventually they'll have their handgun freeze for as long as, as I said, it's, this is done by regulation. So it'll be there for as long as the liberals are in power, uh, unless they lock that in with legislation. But, okay. you know, one of the one of the good things and one of the bad things about our system in Canada is the federal government can do literally almost anything to you. And the next government can literally do the same thing. So what one government does can be undone by the next one, sure. which can be undone by the next one. So 